in Ephesians 5, 1 through 17, there are two words that occur three times. Um, and so we'll, uh, the next slide here will show you these, these two words. Um, in verse 1, verse 2, there's a pair. In verses 7 and 8, and then verses 15 uh, and 16. And I don't usually like get into the original Greek because like, that, I don't want to like, you know, be all like boring and geeky and that sort of stuff. But I think it's really important for this sermon because uh, the way the English translation, to, in order to capture it in a way that makes sense to us, doesn't always convey the fact that these words are identical. They're identical in the original language. So in verses 1 and 2, last week we saw three big questions. We saw the question of identity. Who am I? The question of behavior. What should I do? And then the question of beliefs. What should I believe about what is really real? And we saw there um, that, that we should be imitators of God, walk in love because we are children of God. God has called us to live after the pattern of Christ, and we should believe in, in the, the reality of his love and the reality of judgment in Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. But what we see there is the word be uh, is this Greek word ginomai, or tr- here, ginesthe, which means to be or to become. And that the word in verse 2, sometimes translated live your life, is actually literally the word walk. Now that's important because these exact same words occur then two more times each in our text for this morning, which is Ephesians 5, 7 through 17. The first is in verse 7, do not become their partners. That is, the children of darkness, the children of disobedience, the children who walk according to their own way rather than the way of God. And then to live, or literally to walk, same as in verse 2, as children of light. And then in verse 15, we see, pay careful attention to how you live or how you walk. Peripatete in Greek, that's just, you know, if you know, it doesn't make any sense to you, just, you know, just forget it. Don't stress about it. But just to show you again, then again, don't be or to become foolish. So we see these two important words are tripled in this passage. And it's what, what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at here is he's trying to get to the heart of two important questions. And that is, who are you becoming and where are you going? Who are you becoming and where are you going? These words both have the, this idea of change, direction, and motion. To become is to, 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 to change into something that you were not before. To walk is to move to a destination or in a direction um, that you were not before. Um, to become means that we, are, we want to be something we are not yet fully, that, that's not fully realized in our hearts and our lives. To walk is to say, I am in a place where I want to be in a different place, and so I'm going to walk to get to a different place. And nowhere is it clearer, by the way, that we are different than God, because God is not becoming. He is pure being. He he doesn't change. To change indicates there's a deficiency, that you're going to become something different because what you are is lacking. But God is fully, eternally, 
who he is. He doesn't change because he's perfect. He doesn't need to change. He doesn't need to become because he is already everything that he should be. In the same way, to walk or to move in a certain direction indicates that we need to change not our identity or our, our, our sort of um, habits or, or these sorts of things, but to change our location. God doesn't walk, God doesn't move in that way because he already is where he needs to be. The theological word for this is omnipresent or all present. God is everywhere he needs to be and everywhere he should be eternally all the time. So there's this total difference between who God is and who we are. We approach God as creatures. As creatures, we're different from God. We have to make progress. We have to change. We have to become. We have to grow. We have to develop. God doesn't. We have to move. God doesn't. This is, this is what makes the story of the Bible so beautiful. You see in Genesis chapter 1, God created us to bear his image, to, to reflect in some, some small way the glory of who he is. He created us to be bearers of his image, to, to, to show off who God is really like. And that's what makes the story of sin so terrible, that, that we refused to grow into our identity. We've refused to become what God had called us to be and to walk in the way God had called us to walk. We decided we wanted to go our own way. We, de- we refused to embrace who God had made us to be, and we decided that we wanted to be who we wanted to be. And that, that decision, that, that decision to become who we want to be rather than who God wants us to be, the decision to go where we want to go rather than where God wants us to go, that decision is called sin. It's running away from God's intention. It's, it's running away from God's direction. It's running away from the identity God has called us to live into. And the image of God because of sin was corrupted, but not destroyed. And God wanted to restore it completely and fully. And so God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect bearer of his image, the only person who ever lived who didn't run away from God, who didn't try to go his own way, who didn't try to become what God didn't want him to become, but was perfect and sinless. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death by being crucified and he was buried and raised from the dead. And and, and the Bible says that anyone who will trust in him, God will begin to restore that person to how he intended them to be. God will begin to give that person fullness of life like God intended for them to live. When that person becomes a follower of Christ, they become a Christian, they begin to live into a whole new identity, a whole new way of being a human in the world. They become part of a new humanity. Earlier in Ephesians, we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Jesus came to create in place of the two, one new man. That there were two divided humanities. In in that case, it was Jews and Gentiles were divided. And and Jesus came to create one new humanity. In our world, we're so divided. We're divided between people who vote for Republicans and people who vote for Democrats. We're divided between people who have light skin and people who have dark skin. We're divided between people who have lots of money and people who have a lot less money. We're divided uh, amongst people who are older and remember things like analog 
tapes that you had to put in, hit play, and you couldn't just skip from track to track. And then, then there are these other things, these round discs called CDs, and you could skip automatically from track to track. And now, now we have people like my kids who don't even, they just assume everything you've ever needed could be held in your pocket. That's just the way life is. And you could take your Nintendo with you and the Nintendo Switch, and that's just the way life is. We're divided by age and generation and experience. We're divided in all sorts of ways, but the Bible says God came to bring us back together by bringing us, first of all, to Him. Anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ will become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, that the old has gone and the new has arrived. And here's the thing about being a Christian then. We live in a state of constant tension. We live in a state of constant tension. We just sang about it in that, in that last hymn. I don't know if you caught it. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. We live in the tension between what is already true and what is not yet true. Because the reality is you can become a Christian and you can turn your life over to Jesus. You can walk in this newness of life that God offers to you. You can accept, believe, and, 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 and understand your identity as a child of God. And you can trust God. What you say of me is true of me. That when you pronounced that over your son in his baptism that you, he was your beloved son and you were well pleased with him, that I can believe that's true of me. You can believe that, you can, you can embrace that, you can submit to that, and you can still live your life in exactly the same way as you did before. This is the tension we live in, where we are tempted constantly to become someone who we used to be and to walk in the direction we used to walk. Last week we saw in verses uh, 1 through 6 of Ephesians 5, that we, we talked, as I said, about three big questions. Who am I? If you're in Christ, you are a beloved child of God. How should you live? You should walk in love. You should walk as Jesus walked. What should I believe? What should I believe? The reality that God loves sinners. And anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ will be saved. Anyone who doesn't will endure God's judgment. This week, we're going to build off of those questions, and we're going to ask two more based on these two words. Who should you become, and which way should you go? The first thing we see in Ephesians 5, if you've got your Bibles, your paper copy, like old school, like me, you know, um, or your digital copy on your, on your phone, you know, the Bible app, that's totally fine too. Uh, some people get all spiritual about having a paper Bible. Well, you know, that actually, they didn't used to have paper Bibles. They had these things called scrolls, and they had to get the scroll out and roll it out. And then there was this, this, this technological advancement called a codex, which was actually, they're like, what if instead of having to unroll this whole scroll, we just chopped it up into equally sized sheets and then bound it all together so you could just flip through it? And that was where we got this thing called a book. And so this is just a technological advancement, just like now we can get our Bible on this. So however you encounter the Word of God is fine. The words are the same. We see in verses 7 through 14, Do not become entangled with the children of darkness, but walk as the children of light. Do not become entangled with the children of darkness, but walk as the children of light. 
So if we go back to verse 6, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, verse 7, do not become their partners. To paraphrase this, what he's basically saying is, the reality is that God will judge people who don't believe in Christ and love Him and obey Him, and that's why you shouldn't become full partners with them. Don't get embedded into the life of those who are going to receive God's judgment. And in in these verses, he points to four new realities in the Christian's life that should shape who you are becoming and the way you are walking, where you are going and who you are becoming. The first is in verse 8. Christians have a new identity. Verse 8. For once you were darkness, but now you are light. Once you were darkness, but now you are light. Before you used to be blind, stumbling, and ashamed in the dark, but now you are vision and movement, alive and free in the light. Therefore, live as children of light. Walk as children of light. We're called out of darkness and into the blindingly beautiful light of God. Here's the thing about light. If you're ever in a dark room, like, say, you know, Cross United Church service, and, uh, and you go outside and it's a bright, sunny Florida day, it hurts. The light is so bright, it, it's painful to experience, and you've you got to kind of squint like this. And when we have been living a life of sin and we're exposed to the blinding glory of the purity of God, and we go into that light, it is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And the darkness is more familiar, and we're tempted to go back to the darkness. One of my favorite movies is The Shawshank Redemption. Um, can I get a witness? Yes, yes, amen. All right, all right, we're good, all right. I knew I, knew I liked you all. So my wife, I, I've, you know, I just, this is confession time. I'm a terrible husband because we're going to have our 12th anniversary in June, and I've never watched this movie with my wife. I just, I don't know how that's happened. We were supposed to watch it. We talked about it when we were dating, and then one thing leads to another. You have three kids, 12 years, and you forget to watch the Shawshank Redemption together. But the part in the Shawshank Redemption where this man named Brooks Hadlin, who's been in his, his since he was a kid, basically, and he is going to get let out on parole, and he's an old man at this point. You remember the m- movie where he, he takes the other guy, and he's holding a, a knife to his neck because he, he thinks if he does something bad, they'll let him stay. He's so afraid to get out. But of course, he's, a, he's actually a pretty good guy, and he can't, do, can't bring himself to, to hurt someone who's his friend. And so they, lend up, they let him out. On, they let him out. He served his sentence. And he gets his job at a grocery store, and he just doesn't know how to navigate the world anymore because he's lived his whole life on the inside. And, and finally, he just he can't take it anymore, and he gives up. And the, the narrator is, is a guy named Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And, and, and he says, just imagine, just think of Morgan Freeman's voice. He go, he's talking about being in prison. He goes, these, these walls are funny. First you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, gets so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. We can become so used to and dependent upon our own prison of sin that we don't know how to live in freedom. 
We get so used to our darkness that we don't know how to live in the light. We want to go back to our old friends, our old habits, our old way of life, and it's comfortable there. It's familiar there. It feels safe there. But what God does is He doesn't just change our identity. He actually changes our desires. He doesn't just change our identity. He changes our desires. That's what we see in verses 9 and 10. Christians have new desires. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Basically what he's saying is everything that grows from light is good and righteous and true. In other words, everything that reflects the character of God, the Trinity. And now, maybe, he says, you're starting to realize these are the types of things that please the Lord. Another, God created a process in nature called photosynthesis. Now, I haven't been in elementary school for a long time when I learned about photosynthesis, but from what I understand, photosynthesis allows plants to change light into energy and to grow based on light. And God put the same principle into the spiritual world as well. There is, a, there is a process of spiritual photosynthesis that happens when we are exposed to the light of the glory of God and the presence of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sun is a miracle. You know, when my daughter Adeline was born, she actually had a vitamin D deficiency. And the doctor said, uh, there are two options. You can either get these really nasty brown droplets, drops and, and get the little dropper and give it to her, or you can get her more sunlight. Because the sun, our bo- it's a miracle that our bodies can convert sunlight into vitamin D for our ben- benefit. And, and the reality is God put the same principle into the spiritual world as well, that when we are exposed to the truth of God in the Scripture, when we're exposed to the presence of God in the Holy Spirit, when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our spiritual life can be converted and changed, that the Holy Spirit can enter in and He can change not just what we're supposed to do, that's easy, to change what we're supposed to do, to say you're not supposed to live like this, you're supposed to live like this, but he can actually change our hearts so that we want to do that. He can change our desires, and we can want to do what God wants us to do. And that has to be the case, because the reality is we do what we want to do. We are a product of our desires. We do what we want to do, and God can change our desires as we're exposed to his presence and the light of his glory through the scripture, through the spirit. Third, Christians have a new calling. Verse 11. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. I I, I paraphrase this verse as, all of this means that you shouldn't jump into bed with these kinds of blind, stumbling, shameful people and things, but you should shine a light on them instead. We were never supposed to jump into, into bed with the fruitless works of darkness. But we did anyway, and what we found is that they got us nowhere. They're fruitless. They brought pleasure for a season. They felt good for a while, but all they did was leave us fat, strung out, anxious, and angry. They didn't get us where we wanted to be. And now we're called to expose the fruitless works of darkness. Now, this doesn't mean 
that the church is called to be a group of obnoxious and self-righteous, holier-than-thou-like people, like taking big preacher Bibles and hitting people over the head with it. What it means is that we start with our own house and, in fact, with our own heart. The Bible says judgment begins with the household of God. So let's start by exposing the fruitless works of darkness in our own hearts, in our own community, before we go about the world and trying to expose it there. Now, we are supposed to be a light in a dark world, but we can't take the speck out of our brother's eye if we don't first remove the log from our own eye. We have a new calling to expose the fruitless works of darkness rather than participate in them. We saw last week what those fruitless works of darkness were. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, the ways of this world. Christians have a new calling, and then fourth, they also have a new expectation. Verses 12 through 14. It's shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it's said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The secret things they do are so gross, it's disgusting even to talk about them, let alone to do them. But what the light does is it comes and it shines a light on those secret things, and nobody can hide. Everything will be brought to light. You know, we've seen that in our culture, haven't we? Terrible things being brought to light. And it, it, it takes no preference for whether someone is liberal or conservative, whether someone is religious or irreligious. The darkness is everywhere. Names who are trusted, names who are respected, names who are feared have been shown and their behavior has been exposed. Light can expose even the most secret and shameful darkness. Our expectation is that light will do its work. Light will be brought to bear. We expose the darkness with the light of the gospel. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. And that's a sobering thought because that means every secret thing, every secret sin, every darkness in your heart will be exposed. Every darkness in my heart will be exposed. And if you're harboring secret, shameful sin, turn away from it today because the reality is it will be exposed eventually. The question is, will it be exposed in a way that's more painful then or less painful now? The longer you wait, the more difficult it will be and the more painful it will be to bring that into the light. And even worse, if the light is brought onto it. We're a community here. We're a, we're a safe place if you're a sinner. There's, there's like one prerequisite to be a, a part of this church. You've got to be a sinner. That's the only, that's the only prerequisite. You've got to be a sinner. We're a safe place for sinners, but we're not going to be a safe place for sin. We're not going to be a place where people's sin is swept under the rug and said, you know what, it's okay, it's not that big a deal, because it is a big deal. And if you're living in secret shame and sin, bring it into the light. We want to be a community where people are safe to bring their junk out and say, you know what, this is the real me. This isn't the cleaned up house version because I have company coming over. This is like real life. 
This is who I really am. This is what's really happening. And sometimes that stuff is messy, but God is bigger. And our expectation is that Christ will shine on you. So if that's you, get up and rise because Christ will shine on you. And I know you're tired of hiding. You're tired of pretending. Let it go. The second thing we see in this set of verses is in verses 15 through 17. So we saw the first thing is um, in verses 7 through 14, we saw you should not become, don't become entangled with the children of darkness, but walk as children of light. And then we saw four things. Christians have a new identity. Christians have a new desire. Christians have a new calling. Christians have a new expectation. Then we see the second set of become and walk is in verses 15 through 17. Don't become foolish, but walk carefully. Pay careful attention, verse 15, then, to how you live, literally how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. All of this means, he's saying, in other words, you should pay super careful attention to how you live your life. You should have a plan and intentionality in how you live. Not like a foolish donkey, but like a seasoned wise sage, buying back wasted time because our current moment is wickedly corrupt. This is why you shouldn't become foolish, but get your mind around what God desires. We walk in a world of treacherous ground. I think it's Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, where um, he has to like get the Holy Grail. Is that is that the third one where he has to get the Holy Grail? Anyone? No. Okay, that's all right. Um, so I can just say whatever I want because you've never seen the movie, so that's good. Um, but he has to like cross this chasm, and he has to spell this word, and he has to pick the 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 every stone. The, the correct word is, you know, s- firm ground, and he has to step and walk across. And the other places are, uh, they're, they're false, and they'll, they'll give way underneath him. And, he, and the first, it's like, he, is it have to spell the word Jehovah? or It's like a Christian word, right? And he, 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 he goes to step on the J, and then, then it gives way, and his dad, Sean Connery, is, out, you know, off you know, in another scene, and he says, oh, it starts with an I, and you see Indiana step on the J, and it gives way, and he, he catches himself, and he realizes it's I, and he steps, and he has to choose carefully where he walks, because it's treacherous ground to get across this chasm. I grew up in California, and, and we would sometimes, we had these things, they like protrusions from, from the earth called hills and like mountains, um, and there would be these streams going through the, that we'd go hiking or whatever, and, and these streams um, that um, would have these stones throughout. And if you want to walk across the stream, you could, but you had to be really careful because a stone would be underwater and it would be stable, but it would also be covered with moss. And so if you tried to put your weight on it, it would just totally, your foot would just totally give way and you'd be in a world of hurt. And so you had to be careful and watch carefully how you walked if you wanted to get across that stream. We live in a world full of, of false promises and slippery rocks. And if you're not careful how you walk, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lay you flat on your back and kill you. Be wise. Get wisdom. Watch carefully how you walk. 
We live in a world that is designed to trip you up. Notice it says in verse 15, pay careful attention to how you walk or live, not as unwise people, but as wise. And then in verse 16, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Notice it doesn't say the days are short. Sometimes we think days are short. We have to redeem the time. We have to make the best use of our time. You, you know, we only, we only have so much time. You don't know. You could get hit by a bus on the way home. You don't know. You, know, you only have you know, 80, some 90 years at most. You, know, you have to make the most of the time because the days are short. But that's not what the text says. It says the days are evil. The focus is not on the quantity of days, but on the quality of the time. And the quality of the time, what our culture does and what our world does is it serves like a vacuum to suck away the precious time that God has given you. It will take and it will seek to destroy the fruitfulness of your time. We know this is true because Mark Zuckerberg invented Facebook. We know this is true. Because we all spend way longer than we ever want to admit to anyone watching stuff on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or whatever, maybe all three. The days in our, the t- our culture and our world is designed to steal the fruitfulness of your time. Every once in a while, at, I get a weekly report of my screen time on my phone. Now, the reality is I use my phone for lots of different things, but... When I see how much time I spend on my phone, like, oh my goodness, it's sobering to see. You think about how much time you've spent watching seven seasons of that show. Surfing on Facebook, scrolling through Instagram, whatever it may be. The days are designed. They, they are going to steal your time and the fruitfulness of your time. Buy it back. Don't be foolish. And may, maybe, maybe it's not like these sorts of things that are taking your time. Maybe it's like good things that are, that are sucking away the, good, the, the, the better things. And there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus has two friends who are sisters. Maybe you know the story. There's one named Mary and one named Martha. Martha's like, the, she's like doing, she's like working. She's doing everything. She's, she is serving and getting everything ready. And Mary is doing nothing. She's sitting there hanging out with Jesus. And Martha's getting irritated because we all know if we're the one working hard and our sister's not doing anything or someone's not doing anything, that, that like, why are you not pitching in to help? And she goes, Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all the work to make this a nice little party for us and our friends and for you and I'm doing this for you? And she's just sitting here doing nothing, just hanging out with you. And what does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're busy and you're anxious and you're worried and Mary made the better decision to just sit with me. When I first met Laura, she was reading a book called Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. I don't know if it's a good book or not, so if you read it and it's terrible, don't, don't blame me. Um, but it gets to the, the, the point of the fact that we can be busy with the, the, the sort of ephemeral, worthless things of this world, but we can also be busy with things that seem good and right and spiritual. And we're running around like crazy instead of just sitting with Jesus. And I know like so many of you, you're, you're grinding it out. You're working hard all week. And then you sh- you're working hard at church. And it's not just like you're not, this is not a spectator sport for you. You're, you're, you're working 
and you're, you're serving, and you're doing it, and we couldn't do it without you. Don't get me wrong, but the reality is you need to pay attention because if you're going to burn out and if you're missing out on just sitting with Jesus, please, please come talk to me and say, hey, I need a week off where I can just show up at 1137 when everyone else who shows up, you know, even though we started at 1130, and, and I'm going to worship and I'm going to sing and I might help put a stack a couple chairs, but then I'm out for that, for that week. And I, I'm going to say, okay, that absolutely, because we need time to just sit with Jesus. Maybe it's like on Sundays, it's like, it's like, you know, coin flip, whether it's you're going to make it or not. You need to sit with Jesus. The other stuff will wait. So here's a question. How do you need to respond? I want you to just think, if you change nothing in your life, if you change nothing in your life, who would you be in one year. If you changed nothing in your life and you did all the things for one year that you do now on a consistent basis, who would you be? What would you accomplish? What would your life look like? If you changed nothing in five years, what would your life look like? There was a song by a band called Switchfoot. It says, this is your life. Are you who you want to be? And if you continue the patterns of becoming that you're engaging in now, what will your life look like? Multiply out. How much Netflix would you end up watching? How much time would you end up serving? How much time would you be simply with Jesus? If nothing changed today, where would you be? Who would you become in one year, in five, in ten, if God gives it to you in fifty? Is that who God's calling you to be? Is that who God is calling you where God is calling you to go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of the Bible, for these words, become and walk. To be this type of person because of Christ and the gospel and to walk in this way toward God and with God. I just ask, Lord, that you would make us the people you want us to be Take us where you want us to go. In Jesus' name we pray.